Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon. Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention is back. SoonerCon 31 is scheduled for June 30th through July 2nd, 2023 in Norman, Oklahoma. It promises a weekend full of tabletop gaming, cosplay, and appreciation for literary sci-fi as well as TV and comics. Visit SoonerCon.com for more information. The Hellmouth Convention. The Hellmouth Convention is designed by fans for fans, with the aim of harnessing the power of fandom to raise money for charities. The Hellmouth Convention celebrates all fandoms, but particularly things like Buffy, Firefly, and Dr. Horrible. Like the Hellmouth itself, things gravitate toward it that you may not find anywhere else. The next event is scheduled for June 9th through 11th, 2023, in Los Angeles, California. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today I'm welcoming Austin Trunick to the show. He has authored a fantastic guide to film culture, specifically the culture of the Canon Film Group. I recommend highly looking up the show notes for this episode on my website, aaronbossig.com. And at the end of the show, I'm going to feature a little discussion on what I consider to be a broad history of film culture. This is something I would like to get into more down the road, so if you're interested in hearing more of this type of content, give me a little shout out. Otherwise, let's get started right now. On tap today, we have Austin Trunick. How are you doing this fine day, sir? Uh, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Glad to be on. I'm looking forward to talking about this because you have authored a set of books, I believe, called the Canon Film Guide, which uh, documents the works of a large, large group of companies called the Canon Film Group, which is no longer with us. They've been folded into MGM, but you might not recognize the name off the top of your head, but it's one of those things that you know their work and you know it when you see it. Yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, Even if you don't recognize, they have a very famous uh, logo, the C and an arrow that come together, spread apart, depending on what years uh, you're looking at as far as the movies. And if you don't recognize that, you at least if you ever watched a Chuck Norris movie or a Charles Bronson, or if you spent any time in a video store in the 1980s or early 1990s, you know their work. (laughs) You know it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the B-movie action films came from them in in that time. And not just that, but comedies, science fiction films, a few horror films, they, they were really every, an entire line of children's films. You can find them in any shelf in the video store, which is where I first encountered canon way back in the day now. <laughs> yeah, like for most people's go-to would probably be Delta Force. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally, big Masters of the Universe fan. I don't totally hate Superman 4. <laughs> so yes. yeah and, um it, it's it's that type of movie and i when i saw this book in in your twitter feed i thought on one hand i'm so glad somebody has done this and at the same time i thought what on earth possessed you to do it what what was that driving force <laughs> well really i i i've been writing about movies for years now over a decade for various outlets uh mostly freelance film reviews and interviews and things like that. Um, About seven years ago, I had wanted to start working on a project on my own. I like doing interviews that were retrospective, um, things looking at movies that I've loved for a long, long time. So 
a lot of opportunities would come up in my freelancing days as far as getting to interview somebody tied to a DVD release or an anniversary release of a film. And I didn't want to just wait around for something to hit an anniversary and hope that somebody's doing an afternoon of press for it. And the sort of a project I, I wanted to, th I was, I was getting thinking in my head, what can I do as far as a book or a blog? I wasn't sure at that point, but thinking back to where I fell in love with movies, it was in the video store and it was renting Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson movies with my dad. When I got a little bit older, Ninja films on my own to watch with my buddies after school. And that's, it just kept coming back to that. And Canon is a company that once you begin doing any sort of scratching beneath the surface, looking behind the scenes, they shot movies incredibly fast and incredibly cheap. And that leads to a lot of situations where the stories behind the movies are as crazy or as funny as the stuff that you see on the screen, if not more so. So Canon was something I just, I, I, I kept coming back to them and doing research and thinking, you know what, if, if, if my love of movies began here, why don't I just dedicate this project to that? And at that point, I didn't know how big this project was going to grow to become. I, I started out just wanting to write one book about my favorite you know, 50 canon movies is what I was shooting for. And then as I learned more, as I talked to more people, as I saw more of these movies, I had to know more. I just, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to see everything. I wanted to talk to everybody I could, who's still around to talk to about this, this process, the process of making these films. And it just grew. It snowballed. It's uh, the first two books are out now and they're over 1700 pages uh, combined. And I have a third volume that I'm working on to wrap up the series, which will just cover the, the years of Golden Globus of roughly 14 years of movies. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking at this like you kind of hinted at this before. This is it was a, like a theme in the 80s. It was a mood that these kind of movies were just so in vogue. They weren't necessarily the best produced, but people just got excited about seeing, you know, cheesy action flicks or screwball comedies. And th th it was very different than what you tend to see on the screen now where everything is polished and, and it's all huge budget. And that's there's a place for that. Is, is there something that you, you see when when you make these kinds of, of reviews and, and descriptions that you just feel like commenting on? Well, the reason for, I think, particularly the, the sort of boom in this low to middle budget filmmaking in the 80s, these uh, companies like Canon and Empire and um, Carol Coe and things that pop up, these sort of mini majors that aren't one of the you know old guard Hollywood studios, is in the 1980s, you had two markets that opened up and they needed we call it now content, but back then they just needed something to put on, on TV. And that was cable was a big one. Cable was premium cable, especially where they had a lot of movie channels that were showing movies around the clock and they always needed new movies. They couldn't just keep showing the same things over and over again. And video stores, home video, when, when both of those things sort of just really took off in the early eighties, that made room for companies like Canon who could sort of produce these cheap movies, cheaper movies very quickly. And a company like Canon, they were very good at sort of recognizing what their audience was. If, if, if a Chuck Norris movie was a hit for them, if it did well at the box office or even, even more so it did, did great on video, they would go ahead and sign somebody like Chuck Norris up to a multi-picture contract. If they had one ninja hit movie, hit ninja movie, you, would, you could bet that they were going to make 
seven more ninja movies after that mm-hmm. they they kind of jumped on an idea and they would i mean <laughs> really squeeze everything they could out all the all the money they could as far as just using the same things over and over again but there was a market for that and they many of these movies are entertaining they they strive for the critical acclaim and the like the art art films on on quite a few occasions surprisingly going through these books but they knew that these low budget action movies middle budget b movies are what what paid their bills that was their their bread and butter and they carved out a carved out a niche for themselves as far as what canon could produce and what they knew would would make money for them and you you said that you fell in love with movies in the video store and i did too i'm completely on board with that and i don't think people like us are that unique in our age group there was something about the movie culture at that time that people were just discovering movies in their own homes which was very new in the 80s you mm-hmm. didn't really do that prior to then I, and I, I like to look at movie culture as being you know in several distinct stages that was like the vhs the video store era i what do you think kind of happened to movie fans as a result if i can kind of throw a broader question at you well so i think the main was the lack of information back then you had ability of movies but you didn't Discovering movies, at least my experience, I, I, I didn't have cable growing up in the, at this time, but go to the video store and you had cover art to go by. You'd recognize stars if you'd seen them before in other movies. You didn't really, at least at that age, you didn't recognize directors or anything like that. But you had the cover art, which was always very flashy, especially when it came to these horror, sci-fi and action movies. And then you have the back of the box, which is just a couple little tiny pictures, usually some taglines and one or two paragraphs of description that you didn't have much to go on. And <laughs> I, I think that lent itself to sort of a people discovering, movie fans sort of discovering movies very organically, very on their own. They kind of had to take a chance on something and they were just as likely to see something that was not great as something that blows their minds as, mm-hmm. as a, as me, as a young, young boy. But I, I remember, so I grew up renting movies out in Ohio at the very like mom and pop video stores. This is back at a time you could rent movies. I, at least I remember at the gas station had like a shelf of <laughs> movies. It was everywhere. The grocery store had back in the, back in the front section had a wall where you could rent but primarily new releases. But I remember getting to getting through high school, graduating, and then I went to school in New York, which was a big leap, but going to a place like Kim's Video and signing up for a rental membership. And this was a place that these were like hardcore movie fans that <laughs> knew everything, had seen everything on their shelves. They know all the foreign act the foreign action, they know all the classics and things like that. And that's at least where my kind uh, my 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 growth sort of changed the way I learned and discovered about move uh, discovered movies and learned about new movies learned about directors happened when you had those sort of resources but nowadays thanks to places like IMDb and Wikipedia and now great resources like Letterboxd and newer newer arrivals on the scene 
everybody has the opportunity to be kind of, kind of become an expert like that. You're, <laughs> you're not limited by what's available to you. You can find things, you can learn about things. If you're interested enough, there, there are a lot of movies that are available on some form of media. Now you can still find, um, it's not just your, your film fandom, your growth as a film fan growing based on what's on your shelf at your particular video store that I don't know if that answers your question. I kind of went it, off a tangent there. No, but. no, it, it does. <laughs> and there's a lot of good stuff in there because I'm looking at, you know, the, you, you brought up the information you have as a film fan. And that's the piece I was kind of missing when I was pondering this here is you, when you had to go in there and like you said, with the Canon films, putting out a lot of movies in a short period of time, there was suddenly an increase of just quantity of titles available, which had its effect on the quality to some degree, but you didn't, it was suddenly like you suddenly had a lot more movies available that you had to go through that you could recognize patterns in directors, patterns in actors, patterns mm -hmm. in the Canon label patterns in all the film labels, mm -hmm. you know, like for example, Disney always had its own aesthetic it, you, you knew what a Disney movie was. You knew kind of what you were getting into to a lesser degree, probably universal and Warner brothers kind of had that as well. But where was I going with that? It's, it's very difficult to suddenly see that translate into uh, when you only have one or two movies from each studio a year that you have access to in your local theater, it's much more difficult to form those opinions until you suddenly start seeing you know, the film store comes in and you can go in and rent a different movie each week, a different three movies each week. It's suddenly the speed at which you're learning mm. grows quite a bit. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, and today it's, I mean, we're, we're living in a very, <laughs> any film fan in a very lucky age. Um, not everything is available, but information about movies are available. Mm -hmm. If If you wanted to, learn everything you could about you know italian po uh, police films mm -hmm. you, there are places that you can go and read about that if if somebody wanted to just go on a deep dive on all the movies produced by minak and glan and yoram globe as a canon my books are not just available but you can see a full list of those movies and what they were and there are so many great blogs and so many great film writers who have also watched these movies and reviewed them um you're not just, yes, limited to what is available in your small geographical area. And, and I can't say there wasn't always information because there were books that I loved. Like these, these books, there was the Danny Perry's cult film books that I know shaped a lot of people. You had Mike Weldon's uh, psychotronic video guides and magazine um, that really kind of put the further reaches of film into budding movie fans, hands, genre fans. But it's still you, I, I remember, I was just talking about this, uh, we're getting into the fall season now, but I was talking about uh, Lucio Fulci's Zombie with a, a friend of mine, which is a, one of the classic Italian zombie movies. But I had very distinct movies, uh, memories of seeing the video box at a video store that was not in my town, but it was somewhere far away where I infeasible to rent. I remember there being there and young, being there with my parents and seeing this book and just uh, the, the box for the movie and just being completely taken by how 
scary looking it was, the tagline, we are going to eat you, and it burning its way into my head. And this would have been sometime in the late 80s, but I didn't have the opportunity to actually see that movie until I think the DVD era, probably the late 90s. So this is a, <laughs> it's just an example of a movie that I I knew existed and only exist, like I could only imagine what the movie was like in my head for mm-hmm. 10 years because of the inaccessibility of not my my stores that I went to did not have a copy of that. And that was always something that was frustrating that in that era. But then everybody's video store also had stuff that everyone else didn't. There are certain action movies I, I grew up with that I, in my head, because they were always on the shelf and we rented them over again, like, these are classics. This is an all-time classic. And then getting out there and realizing that it's not, it was just a classic in my particular little store because <laughs> those people in, in Kinsman, Ohio happened to like happened to like the movie Hell Squad, for example, more than people in other parts of the world. There's something really, really great about v- video stores in the mid to the early to mid 90s before DVD took off. And I, people always talk about the boon that DVD was to movie fans, and it absolutely was. There were so many great things that DVD brought to the table that weren't there before. But there was one thing that DVD did, and that was it basically kneecapped the history that went into vi- movie stores, uh, video stores. And here's why. When you had a store in, say, 1995 that had been there for 10, 12 years, that's they there were 10, 12, sometimes even 20 years worth of tapes in that store that they had been amassing. Those were tapes that were out of print. Those were tapes that had short runs. Those were tapes that were picked up by weird retailers and, and suppliers that mm. were not available. You could go back and it was like having the whole film history of at least your local town at your disposal. Mm. When DVD came along, suddenly they were buying the same stuff everybody else was buying. You couldn't get a movie that was more than six months old because DVD wasn't that old anymore. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly t- stores lost their history and and film, y- your access to that was lost as well. Yeah, that, I, I agree with you there. Those video stores, especially late, late at the end of the VHS uh, era, they, I, those were curated collections. Mm-hmm. And there was somebody... There was somebody choosing what to buy and how much to buy of it. And it's, you think, like the, the word curation is, it, it feels so loaded to me, but that's what it was. And if your video store had, you know, five copies of Jerry Maguire and also a copy of The Happy Hooker goes, goes to Hollywood, that's, that's a very, both of those are just interesting parts and they tell you a lot about what <laughs> what the taste was in that in that in that place what the taste was of the person buying videos and buying tapes for for that particular store was and it, it's it's interesting to me i i i don't want to fetishize i guess too much the actual like t- a, t- a tape itself but mm. i i love vhs i and i love things like finding these older movies and looking at the stickers on them seeing the you know the you know whatever the video store's name was with the phone number and you know the tuesdays two for one and or something along those lines or like how much what the penalties are for not rewinding your tape and things like that just the the stickers and everything that these tapes accumulate over time uh 
it it does tell you a story of an object <laughs> mm -hmm. and I, yeah that object might be a videotape copy of texas chainsaw massacre 2 or something but it's it's still history it is and i have no love of this format vhs the the actual act of watching a movie on vhs i consider to be complete garbage to be honest with you um I know that there's that's the best way to see some of these movies. It's the most practical way to see some of these movies. I remember using VHS in the day and just hating it because it had access to laser discs. So mm. yeah, I could make the comparison very early on. But the I am with you to the extent that you want to see the history of where that copy of the movie has come from, that what's happened to it, what had what what movies were like at that time. I've loved fell in love with a lot of movies thanks to VHS. Mm. Where, where I draw the distinctions, I have some peers who still want to collect the VHS tapes, and you are probably in this camp yourself, not trying to, you know, <laughs> knock you personally. Oh, no, thank you. No, but yeah. um, I, I, I don't want to fetishize either, and that, that's kind of where I'm coming from there. Mm -hmm. No, I I have a very, like, a, a nostalgia and a fondness for VHS, but I mean, I... I I am currently like very much in love with the 4K and HDR and watching movies in, in that format now. And and seeing some of these movies that it's funny that I grew up watching on on VHS now in these kind of crazy, beautiful editions. Um, I, I think of something is the first, I think my first exposure to Italian horror was um, um, Bava's Demons from and that's a movie that i can i mean i the i can i can draw for you the if it, it on a napkin like the box artwork like it just stuck in my head so much and it's a movie that i rented a bunch of times and it was always like you're you're very battered very worn out tape but now seeing the i think the last last earlier this year they released the 4k uhd with the hdr in it and you can see you can appreciate things like the colors and the eyes glowing and stuff like that. It's it's fun to see these movies that I'm used to looking like, I mean, trash, I guess. And seeing just like, oh, wow, these are actually very, very like well shot, very beautiful movies. There's, it, it's the same, I guess, as seeing something on VHS and then getting the chance to see it on 35 millimeter or mm -hmm. at a repertory screening. That's That's something that happens a lot as well. I've recently had the chance to see a large two-hour um, supercut of 35 millimeter Canon trailers. And these are movies that I've watched six, seven, eight, nine, ten times in the course of writing these books, but they'd always been on VHS or a VHS rip. And it's funny to even see just as a trailer, 35 millimeter, and see like, wow, this originally this movie looked good. The the mm -hmm. few people that went to see this movie in theaters, they it, they saw an entirely different movie than the one that everyone else saw for the you know the last rest of the last forty years <laughs> since it came out. And, and yeah, just like you were saying, the stickers kind of become part of the the object's identity. Sometimes that muddled presentation becomes part of the movie's identity to the people who discover it that way, and that's not the worst thing in the world because they get the warm and fuzzy feelings about the imperfections in the video and maybe the bad cuts or the the bad dubbing and i i get that that you know you just kind of get into that's how you watch movies and I, you you develop an affection for finding something you love you, you're getting this because you ended up loving the movie or that experience of watching it 
but to deny yourself the chance to see the movie in its true glory later mm -hmm. on, I think that's a step too far. It's like, wait a minute. Okay. I, I appreciate your experience. I appreciate that you came to love the movie. Do yourself the, the justice of seeing it as it looked when it was brand new. We can do that. We have the technology. <laughs> yeah. It's in a very, very fortunate. Yeah. Again, era as, as film fans that we, we have, we have that option to to see see movies in multiple ways just it's even now something something like as a can example they took so john Cassidy's last film love streams he put together a theatrical cut and canon ended up having the rights to the video cut and they were at odds over it but they cut nearly a half hour out of their version that was based on tape. And that is the version that for 35 years or so was the only one people saw. And this is, gosh, probably like five or six years ago when the Criterion Collection of all people, they, they put out a Canon film, but they put out Love Streams. They put out the restored theatrical cut. And it's great because now we can see... Cassavetes, his vision, what he wanted this movie to look like. But then the version that's still available is the one that people have been watching. It's the version they know for 35 years. That's mm -hmm. it's it's I think that's important as as a in 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 the in the mode like just in the story like film preservation and things like that. To preserve the story of a film, like there are there is the correct way, the the what the director in, in, intended, but then there is also the version that is the one existed for most of the film's history, and it's nice to nice to know that we live in an era that we can have both. And again, that's something that's wonderful about DVDs, Blu-rays, UHDs now is that so many of them can collect multiple cuts or have branching cuts and things like that on them. I I'm a total geek for all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm with you there completely. I have gotten away from buying the big box sets with all the little widgets and feelies in them when I buy a movie. But the last time I really had to spend serious money on a box set was the Blade Runner release where they released like all five cuts of the movie at the same time. I adore stuff like that. Because mm -hmm. like you said, it there's you, you want to have the version that was intended by the creators but when a movie takes a side route and, and grows a, a separate identity due to circumstances outside of that, that's not unimportant. And we should look at that as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and in the case of director's cuts, there you can have a preferred cut. There, there are many movies where I prefer the, the studio cut over the director's mm -hmm. cut. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's great that we're able we have the option to be even to be able to compare them now have more mm -hmm. than one have a menu available to us for yeah <laughs> the types of movies we love and how, the way we get to see them and because there's a there are times when you can look at a film and just say i prefer this i think this does the job better and you can have a respectful disagreement with the creator even though they're not mm -hmm. in the same room it's not really going to matter to them it's just film fans do this we say this mm -hmm. ch change affected me this way Mm -hmm. uh, for example, I mean, the, the 
the longer version of the quote unquote X-rated version of RoboCop, I find to be a fascinating example mm -hmm. because I, it's actually not as bad of a watch to me because some of the cuts made it jarring and unsettling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a great example. I was just I was just watching the side the 1997 film Drive, um, mm -hmm. the Mark Dacascos one, and that was that was one that was just released on a. Uh, 4k uhd and then director's cut and the theatrical cut but the theatrical cut or is what i had seen years ago and is 20 minutes shorter but i actually preferred that one i after watching the director's cut i'm like okay this is this is good but they were able to tell the same story with 20 shorter minutes and <laughs> not there's nothing in there that so it's just one of those things that again like i am very happy that when this was released like they they decided to include both versions because now that I've seen the director's cut, I will probably go back to the <laughs> the studio cuts uh, anytime I rewatch it because it does the same job. It gets all the good parts in and it saves me 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so if somebody is looking at film from the 80s, they they found find movies that they're watching today and they're like, oh hey, well, you know, I like Superman movies now. And then there was this, these movies in the 80s. What would you point them toward it from the canon collection that you'd want to grab them and just kind of show them something that they're not going to see if they go to the movie theater today? I would definitely point them towards especially the ninja movies. If I were to pick one Revenge of the Ninja is a movie that I can recommend to anyone anytime uh canon was really there, there was a big change in the way that that things were done um not long after the canon era the era of the 1980s action was one of them there it's a movie that was done on a low budget it's all practical effects works and stunt work and there are very hard-working stuntmen in those movies that you you can watch it and there's a a, I would guess a. At least me, I can only speak for myself. But I, I, you watch action movies today, and you know that every you have a feeling that everything's you know everything's safe. You know there's so many rigging, so many things like that. So many, you know, I'm not even getting into going to begin to get into like green screen and things like that and and CGI. But in Revenge of the Ninja, for example, when there's a van speeding down the road and there's a ninja hanging, you know, standing on top of it. And you know that that's actually some guy who is actually doing that. And it, it's, again, that's like, they're not like specifically this movie there. That was just something that was much a very prevalent in 80s mid-budget and low-budget filmmaking of any kind. You, <laughs> you, you were working with lower resources, actually stuff stuff was more stuff looks more real because it was in a lot of cases when, when it comes to action and stunts you um that's that's one thing i would i would point to but you look at that as far as in terms of special effects and things like that too you look at a movie like life force or space vampires if you're in europe mm. that is a movie that really it was some of the most advanced practical effects as far as animatronics and puppets and things used in that in that movie makeup effects that 
a lot of money was put into those movies and in a few years all of that would be done on computers instead and so so if you're a fan of practical effects makeup animatronics things like that especially if you're into sci-fi or horror movies like there i think there's a reason why people look back at the especially those genres and kind of cling to those films um <laughs> you know like like blade runner you mentioned is a, is a great example like all the miniatures that are used in that and things like that you, you it's very rare that you're going to see those that sort of level of care and detail put into something that's just going to be a throwaway shot mm-hmm. back then they had no other way of doing that but now you can do it and it can look very good very convincing just on a computer it's <laughs> there's it, the 80s stuff looked stuff could look really good and very real and i think as you get into the 90s and onwards it's you lose you lose some of that for a while as, as until the technology from the computers they get better and better and better and get yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go off on a rant and well you know, no I'm, the I'm old with man, you there old man yelling at the clouds but you know the I, movies don't look the you know i don't like the way the movies look today but no it's it's not the case of that it's just there's things were done in a different way that was harder but it was done really well because people got really good at it Mm -hmm. i find and i'm not trying to say this is the right or wrong way of doing it i'm just saying this is what works for me doing things with a practical effect and do using actual sets actual miniatures for me it works simply because that little five percent my brain has to fill in to believe it brings me into the movie a little bit more it's more engaging for me because mm-hmm. it actually grabs my imagination just a little bit mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. i have to fill in the last five percent and I, I like doing that yeah and it's i i think it also to a degree plays into performances that's you know if you've got somebody who's reacting to a monster and even if it's a you know a cheesy looking puppet in a movie that reaction is going to have a lot more i guess some more built-in reality to it than somebody who is reacting to nothing that's Mm -hmm. going to be inserted in post and yeah i i am i'm absolutely with you there even if even if whatever the effect is doesn't look as good there there i i think it it adds I guess a, a level of reality that yet my brain can make up or wants to make up or fill in the gap. I haven't had a chance to hold your book in my hand yet. So <laughs> I'm going to have to see. So I, I, I don't know if you have this information or not, but mm-hmm. how much work did you do on the movie Raw Deal? Well, Raw Deal is actually not covered in these books. That uh, it was a Canon pickup. So, okay. um, when Canon bought Thorny MI in 1986, they took over the Thorny MI deal that they had with HBO. So okay. the HBO Thorny MI video became HBO Canon video. So Raw Deal is one that got, was part of that deal. So Canon had really 
not, not much to do with it other than distributing it and having their name on some of the video boxes. So it's, it's, it, there's, there's a very long chapter in this, the, the second book kind of explaining where I had to draw the, draw sort of a line. Cause if you look at a full, if you're put, try to put together a list of every movie that was released with a Canon logo in some format or another, um, because they bought a lot of theatrical distributions, they had a lot of video deals, they bought a lot of things that were, you're looking at about 1200 movies, <laughs> which is a lot. So what, what in the books, I, I focus on the ones that are Golden Globus productions, ones that were made in-house. Gotcha. And that's why I wanted to phrase it that way, because I, I, I wanted to give you credit if this was just outside the scope of your project, because mm-hmm. that's totally okay. One thing I've always wanted to look into is there is a scene in the movie that prominently features a type of soda called A-Treat. A-Treat is a product of Eastern Pennsylvania, where I'm from originally. Mm-hmm. It's a very regional product. And for some reason, it's involved in a movie that's set in Chicago. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm like wondering, because this makes no sense to me, because like there, it would make no sense for them to do product placement because the soda mm-hmm. wasn't sold anywhere but Eastern Pennsylvania. And I didn't, I couldn't believe it was an accident that it wound up there. So I'm really just wondering how this happened. If anybody does know this, please reach out to me. Absolutely. Where, where in Eastern Pennsylvania are you from? If you don't mind I'm originally from, from the Allentown area. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've just spent some time out in Eastern Pennsylvania. I was with book events, one at the Mahoning drive-in. And Okay. Um, then I'm actually from that Lehigh. Really? Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah, I was out there. That was where I got to see the beautiful uh, Canon trailer show that was put together by Exhumed and shown at the Mahoning. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, that's that's an incredible place. If I lived, I'm, it's, it's about five hours drive from where I live. Otherwise, I would be out there <laughs> every yeah. weekend because that's just a wonderful, magical place for movie fans. It really is. I saw some of my first drive-in movies there. Uh, there were a lot more drive-ins at the time than there are now, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But yeah. there's there's two of them because there there is the the Mahoning and there's the Circle Drive-in up in up in Scranton, which mm-hmm. is another big beautiful. I have I love drive-ins. I love drive-ins, and anytime I can be in an area and visit a drive-in, I'll I'll take the opportunity. And yeah, Eastern Pennsylvania is yeah, they're not many, but boy, they are a very <laughs> very lucky place to have two very good ones. They really right are, yeah. Yeah, I, I would normally just say I'm from the Allentown area because so few people know where Lee Heighton is specifically. But when you say <laughs> Mahoning Drive-In, I'm like, okay, yes. you, you know exactly what I'm talking about now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's where I yeah I was so I, I've I've spent a lot of time out there in the last uh, last couple months. <laughs> well, if you find yourself back that way again, go a couple miles down the road to a place called PJ Wellahans. Okay, you, you will have yourself a good meal. All right. Good to know. Good to know. I'm sure I'll be back because, yeah, the Mahoning, like I said, I, I've made two trips out there this summer at, at a five hour each way, but I'll be back again. <laughs> it's, just a, awesome. it's just a wonderful place. Well, where can we track your travels and track your adventures on the internet? I am on Twitter and Facebook at Canon Film Guide, all one word. Um, and that's where I post almost every day, if not more frequently, just stuff I find about canon stuff that didn't fit in the books things I've learned since the books have come out and it's just a I love I love social media now and I love that it's been a way to just to connect with other movie movie fans <laughs> it's um 
yeah, so definitely look me up, feel free to ask me questions and, or, you know, I'm, I'll, I'm always happy to shoot the breeze about any canon, non-canon movies. That's gladly. I will put that in the show notes on my website, aaronbossig.com. I will include links to the book, links to your Amazon author page, anything else I can cram on there to make sure we get as much review of this project as we can. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much for being here. I'm really glad to have you. You can come back anytime. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was fun. I would like to thank Austin for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. I really wish he and I could have talked a little bit more about the drive-in movie theater experience that we had discussed at the very end of this episode. Drive-in theaters have been a topic previously on the episode with Arch Hall Jr., for example. It's an example of a specific culture that film history had that we've seen come and go in the past. I've mentioned this briefly in other episodes, but it really sticks out here. I feel like we had several distinct eras where, for example, we had the movie theater era, which was kind of the beginning of the film history era, and granted, that's long before my time. The drive-in movie culture took over from there, where people would tend to you know, experience things, cheaper movies in drive-in theaters. It was what it was. The area that we start talking about in this episode is the VHS era, the home video era, where people start bringing the experience into their homes in large numbers. Now, I realize prior to that, there were things like 8mm projectors and there were movies on TV. But to actually bring the movie theater experience to home in any real degree started with the VCR. Eventually it led to DVD. DVD becomes its own era because DVD created the opportunity to study film through home movies. You didn't really have that with VHS. You kind of sort of had it with Laserdisc, but with DVD it came in in quantity. The average person could enjoy this and the average person did. And then obviously today we're in the streaming era, which is its own discussion entirely. But if you're thinking of watching a movie in that home theater element, consider getting yourself some sci-fi coffee. And I would strongly recommend the Intergalactic Romance. It's a wonderful mix of flavors. It's very cozy for a movie experience. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.